Chapter 7. Who owns sexual privacy? I know sex is one of the subjects like religion and politics that you're not supposed to talk about. It's a shame that people don't think about religion and politics as often. But these days, everybody on the TV talk shows seems to be discussing the matter. So is the state. You might be thinking, why in the world would the state be concerned about the issue of sex? I think that's a good question, because it is rather strange that the state would venture into such private matters. What's going on? The state realises that this is another one of those areas that determines who owns the family. How so? In People vs. Onofre, 1980, the New York Court of Appeals extended the quote, constitutional right of privacy to guard the right of unmarried adults to seek quote, sexual gratification. Unquote. Catch the implication? Constitutional lawyer John Whitehead in Parents' Rights explains that the whole issue of sexual privacy has to do with the family. He says, quote, While sexual privacy may at first seem unrelated to the issue of family forms, this case, People v. Unafree, was a key factor in this subsequent decision of a lower New York court in 1981 to allow one adult male to adopt another adult male. On a variation of the privacy theory, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court has given constitutional protection to sex acts performed in a public lounge between dancing performers and lounge patrons. Thus, the idea of sexual privacy outside traditional marriage has, in most respects, become a part of the basic law. The older concept that such practices were to be protected only within the family unit has been eradicated. Quote, with the decline in the sacrosanctness of the family, however, at least two effects are evident. First, the needs of children are neglected, and as a result, children are harmed. Second, the power of the state is increased. If these effects are not stalled, they will have a devastating impact on the stability of American society. End quote. Whitehead is absolutely right. Here is another area that the state tries to define in an attempt to take what has been entrusted to the family. God created sex, so he is not against it. An entire book of the Bible is devoted to the subject of the sexual relationship between a man and a woman, the Song of Solomon, sometimes called Canticles. He entrusts the family with this important aspect of life. It is the family that is responsible for its proper application and instruction. Unfortunately, the war of sexual privacy is not just happening in the civil realm. It is also occurring in other areas. A newly invented constitutional right. What is quite remarkable is this. There is no right of privacy listed anywhere in the US Constitution. The whole doctrine has been read into the Constitution by the Supreme Court over the last two decades. The Supreme Court has enumerated this constitutional right of privacy for the first time in the landmark case of Griswold versus Connecticut. The state of Connecticut had made it illegal to sell contraceptives. This was challenged in the Griswold case, and the Supreme Court recognised a right of privacy within the confines of marriage, stemming from the 14th Amendment. 
1973, this newly discovered constitutional principle had served the court in abolishing state laws against abortion. Mothers and their licensed medical abortionists supposedly possess such a right of privacy. This right is outside the jurisdictional boundary of the protection previously granted to the family in the Griswold case. The child who is about to be aborted is not part of this Supreme Court-invented, quote, doctor-patient, unquote, sphere of protection. But that was only the beginning. In that same year, University of California law professor Walter Burnett wrote a book defending the idea that state laws against homosexuality must also be abolished by this constitutional principle. His defense of this idea was financed by the taxpayers of the state of New Mexico. When New Mexico State University Press published Barnett's book, Sexual Freedom and the Constitution, the words on the book's front flyleaf, dust jacket flap, reveal a great deal. Quote, Ever since the publication of Kinsey's work on human sexual behaviour in 1948 and 1953, efforts have been made periodically to revise American criminal laws on sex so as to exclude from their scope all private activity between consenting adults. End quote. Virtually none of the experts in law, the social and behavioural sciences or psychiatry believes that legal prescription of such activity serves any justifiable purpose. End quote. In short, the book appeals to the supposedly unanimous quote, experts end quote, of the day, especially Dr. Kinsey, whose academic speciality prior to his famous books on American sexual behaviour was the study of wasps. I don't mean white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, I mean wasps. He had been an entomologist, not a psychiatrist, but he was accepted by the psychiatrists and other experts because they liked his conclusions, namely that sexual deviation is so common that we can't define deviation. What Kinsey proved was really much less significant, that those people who were willing to fill out the questionnaires were willing to admit deviant sexual acts. But again, the critics kept their peace. They liked his conclusions. Then, the flyleaf of Barnett's book admits a very important fact, quote, Almost no one has considered the possibility that reform could be compelled by the courts through constitutional invalidation of existing laws, end quote. Remember, this was written as late as 1973. Since that time, the supposed right of privacy, but now outside the family covenant, has been extended more widely. Just as Barnett's book recommended, though not yet as far as he recommended, Professor Barnett wanted the principle of privacy to be extended, quote, all the way to a sodomy law drawn so broadly as to apply the consensual relations of husband and wife, as well as others, must therefore be unconstitutional, end quote. Barnett, Sexual Freedom and the Constitution, page 52. And consider this, quote, It should now be clear that Griswold versus Connecticut has opened a massive breach in the wall of traditional constitutional wisdom surrounding the sodomy laws, page 67. It may be of passing interest to the reader that Professor Barnett was a legal advisor to the U.S. State Department before he journeyed to San Francisco to join the staff at the Hastings College of Law. In short, the, quote, sexual freedom, unquote, promoters argue, one, family government is entitled to privacy, 
2. Mothers and abortionists are entitled to privacy. 3. Sodomites are entitled to privacy. They have neglected to mention point 4. Number 4. God is entitled to bring us AIDS. A society that adopts Professor Barnett's conclusions will find itself being depopulated by AIDS, as is happening today in Uganda. But that possibility didn't concern the, quote, experts, unquote, back in 1973, and they just don't seem to mention it these days. In today's humanist-dominated world, AIDS is a politically protected killer epidemic. It is my guess that it won't be politically protected forever. War on traditional values. Our children are being bombarded with a set of values that is completely contrary to the traditional biblical mode. Listen to the media. Listen to spokespersons. Don't you love that word, quote, spokesperson, end quote, at every level of our society? And you'll hear, quote, sex in alternative forms, homosexuality, and sex outside of marriage is okay, end quote. In the Humanist Manifesto 2, it says, quote, We believe that intolerant attitudes, often cultivated by orthodox religions and puritanical cultures, unduly repress sexual conduct. The many varieties of sexual exploration should not, in themselves, be considered evil. Individuals should be permitted to express their sexual proclivities and pursue their lifestyle as desired. End quote. The Planned Parenthood booklet for teenagers says, quote, Sex is fun and joyful. Courting is fun and joyful, and it comes in all types and styles of which are okay. Do what gives pleasure and enjoy what gives pleasure. And ask for what gives pleasure. Don't rob yourself of joy by focusing on old-fashioned ideas about what's normal or nice, end quote. At the, quote, Sex Educators Workshop, end quote, in Washington, D.C., in 1981, it was said that, quote, parents with traditional values are intolerant, ignorant, and bigoted. Sex educators approach the following with openness to relieve the child's anxieties. Non-marital sex, homosexuality, masturbation, abortion, contraception, and incest, end quote. Mary Lee Tatum reported on the same workshop, quote, the prevailing theme, children from sixth grade on, must have come to accept it, homosexuality, as normal. A good experience is to have the two ten-year-old girls role-play two male lovers, end quote. Parents who quote scripture against homosexuality are irrational. Their minds are perverted, end quote. After such statements as these, I think most would agree with Barbara Morris in Change Agents in the School, quote, the purpose of sex education is to eradicate Christian values and Christian behaviour relating to sexual activities and to replace them with humanist values and behaviour. Clearly, there is a war on the family, and sex is one of the areas being attacked. Better put, the monopoly of marital sex is being attacked in the name of sex in general. But sex in general is the problem. If the family has a lawful monopoly over interpersonal sex. This gets us back to the thesis of this book, namely that the family is one of God's three covenantal monopolies, along with the church and the state. The state has a monopoly of the sword, the church has a monopoly of the sacraments, 
the family has a monopoly over interpersonal sex. This is what the sexual freedom crowd is desperate to deny. If it gets the other two governments to accept this doctrine, then the covenantal legal integrity of the family is overthrown and its claim to protection from the other sovereign governments is also overthrown. The strategy of the humanists is clear to create an unchallenged state monopoly. The family's monopoly is easiest to deny judicially today in the name of the quote, separation of sex and state, unquote, meaning the separation of anti-family sex from civil prosecution. This is being done through a coordinated campaign. It is interesting that this self-conscious campaign attacks all five points of the biblical covenant. One, defining God as autonomous man, sovereignty. Two, defining away the family, hierarchy. Three, defining away sexual deviation, standards. Four, overturning laws against sexual deviance, sanctions. Five, denying civil protection for infants, inheritance. The humanist tactics are clear. The family is the political weak link of today's relativistic social order, and they are the humanists' primary political target. If they succeed in destroying its integrity as a lawful covenant monopoly, then it's, quote, one down, one to go, end quote. The church will be next. At the end of the process, there will be only one covenantal monopoly, the state. The sword will rule all. Does the Bible have anything to say about the proper principled defence of this humanist strategy? Yes. Scripture not only condemns sex in any form outside of marriage, it speaks very positively about sex within the confines of holy matrimony. It offers both a positive and a defensive campaign. Sex outside of marriage. The Bible condemns every form of sex that is not performed in marriage homosexuality and lesbianism. Quote, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonour their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. End quote. Romans chapter 1 verses 24 to 27. Quote, if a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 22. Premarital sex with engaged and not engaged virgin. Quote, if there is a girl who is a virgin, engaged to a man, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out of the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death. The girl, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he has violated another man's wife. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. But if in the field the man finds the girl who is engaged, and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the girl. There is no sin in the girl worthy of death. For just as a man rises against his neighbour and murders him, so is this case. 
If a man finds a girl who is a virgin, who is not engaged, and seizes her and lies with her, and they are discovered, then the man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father fifty shekels of silver, and he shall become his wife, because he has violated her. He cannot divorce her all his days. End quote. Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 to 29. Incest. None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. End quote. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 6. Quote, Whoever lies with a beast shall surely be put to death. End quote. Exodus chapter 22, verse 19. These are certainly the most prevalent kinds of sexual sin in our society. But why does the Bible condemn them? Scripture makes an important comparison between God and his bride, the church and human marriage. Paul says, quote, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. End quote. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 22 to 27. So, human marriage is a reflection of the marriage between God and his people. The purpose of marriage is here not just having children or even just finding sexual fulfillment. These are secondary purposes. The reason for marriage is to display the greatest human analogy of God's union with his bride. Any kind of deviant sexual relationship mirrors the wrong picture of God's relationship to his bride. Sex is evil when it is outside of marriage between man and woman. Does this mean sex is all bad? Obviously not. God is all for sex. After all, he created man and woman with the capacity to have it. He wants man and woman to be sexually fulfilled. How do I know? We've examined sex outside of marriage. Now let's look at what the Bible says about proper sexual relationship. Sex within marriage. Sex always has to do with authority. Remember the second principle of the covenant concerns a biblical hierarchy. So do the second and seventh commandments. But what exactly does sex have to do with authority? Sex involves submission to one's partner. The Apostle Paul says the following to the church at Corinth, quote, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfil his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except in agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. End quote. 1 Corinthians 7 verses 2 to 5. God is not against sex. When confined to the covenant of marriage, sex is spiritual. Paul provides us with several controlling ideas demonstrating the relationship between sex and authority. 1. 
There is an implicit mutually assured dependence created by the covenant. The woman is dependent on the man and he is dependent on her. The man is dependent on the woman by allowing her to fill the special void in his life which was created when God removed a rib from Adam's side to make the woman. If anything else fills that void, he is acting autonomously. The woman is dependent on man by allowing the man to give her a functional definition, not ethical. The woman is dependent on man by allowing the man to give her a functional definition, not ethical. This is the essence of receiving the man's name. Thus, both are dependent on each other. If she allows another to give her definition, then, like the man, her autonomous rebellion appears. Eve allowed Satan to give her a new definition. To be as God, Genesis chapter 3 verse 5, she submitted to Satan ethically by eating the forbidden fruit. And she then took dominion over her husband by tempting him to defy God. They both abandoned God's ethics and this disrupted, inverted their God-assigned functional authority relationship. 2. Sexual submission is an authority issue. In Genesis we see that God says of the woman, quote, In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. End quote. Genesis chapter 3 verse 16. The practical physical result is summarized by one writer, quote, In the place of the joy at the irreducible difference of the other, the partners experience the desire of selfish possession. Genesis chapter 3 verse 16. The sexual drive, which is naturally extrovert, is disturbed by a movement of introversion. Instead of turning towards the other, it turns on itself. End quote. In other words, the fall of man made him turn in on himself. The sexual expression of this is masturbation and rejection of God's sexual design. Redemption brings a new extroversion in marriage so that God's people ought to have the most wonderful marriages which are filled with this sexual extroversion. If not, then rebellion is taking place. Where frigidity is due to rebellion, the sexual problems are ethical as opposed to psychological. 3. All things are lawful in the marriage bed, given the parameter of mutual submission. Variety is a blessing of God, but a husband or wife should not attempt variety which is repulsive to his or her partner. Sex is an act of submission. To attempt sexual acts in rebellion to your partner undermines the whole sexual relationship. 4. The point of temptation comes when husband and wife abstain. Notice that abstinence is not valid for the reason of marital conflict. Paul's requirement not to abstain except for fasting and prayer, and this implies that separation from one another physically should not be for long periods of time. Also, sex was never intended just for procreation. God wants sex to be mutually satisfying. Therefore, sex was created by God and designed to be a part of the marriage relationship. The physical side of one flesh is God's gracious provision. It is a serious matter when a couple has sexual problems and should never be underestimated. Sex is the expression of the entire marital bond. Anytime sex is taken away from marriage or placed outside of marriage, the family is directly being attacked by Satan. 
when the state allows perverted sexual relationships, it is obeying Satan, not God. When the state attempts to educate children in sexual matters, unless it affirms the biblical viewpoint, it is playing into the hands of the devil. The state is not to be in the, quote, education business, end quote, anyway. Ever wonder why the state never defends the biblical position in all of its attempts at sex education? The state is not supposed to be in any kind of education. It would be very difficult for it to uphold the biblical position in one area when it violates scripture in almost every other. God is very clear about the physical relationship between a man and woman. He condemns it when outside marriage. He condemns it when inside marriage, sex, even its education, is to be confined to the realm of the family. Summary What I have set out in this chapter, I've raised the question, who owns sexual privacy? I believe that this is an important issue because the state has legislated sexual privacy away from the family. It's just one more attempt to break up traditional values so that others can be substituted. Joseph Sobran in, quote, What is this thing called sex? End quote, National Review, January 1981, says, quote, It is no accident they supplemented each other, sex ed programs and socialism. The socialist project of homogenizing society demands that the family be vitiated or destroyed. This can be accomplished in good measure by profaning, marriage love, and breaking monogamy's link between sex and loyalty. End quote. 1. I began with the case of People vs. Onofre to demonstrate the shift of sexual privacy from the home to outside of it. 2. Next, I discussed a, quote, newly invented constitutional right, end quote, designed to expand sexual privacy. Here I showed how the case of Griswold vs. Connecticut paved the way for Roe vs. Wade. 3. I talked about the war on traditional values. 4. The Bible condemns sex outside of marriage in all its forms, bestiality, homosexuality, adultery, etc. 5. God, however, is not down on sex. In fact, God outlines how to have a successful sexual relationship within marriage with the following principles. A. Mutually assured dependence. B. Sexual submission is an authority issue. C. Variety allowed in terms of mutual submission. B. Abstinence leads to temptation. Thus, God is so much for sex that he devoted an entire book on the subject, Song of Solomon. Solomon graphically addresses the question of romance between man and woman. God is not against sex. He's all for it when done according to his word. So, who owns sexual privacy? The family does, because God has entrusted it to this institution and no other. Once again, we see that the state has tried to legislate against God by legalising sex outside of marriage and by using sex education programmes in the public schools in order to change the, quote, mindset, end quote, of American life. The whole discussion of sexual privacy brings us to the question of education. Perhaps now you can begin to see why there is such a hue and cry from liberals and their humanist-educated Christian accomplices about Christian education. Christian education cuts off their attempt to indoctrinate the next generation. Why? Christian education provides a different world and life view. 
In the following chapter, I want to move to the area of education, but not education in general. Rather, I want to answer such question as, how does education provide a whole world and life view? So what? What is a Christian worldview? Let's turn to the next chapter to find the answer to these questions.